I'm Aaron Armstrong. I'm Pete Moran. And we love to watch. We love to watch. Rock Lobster. Speak up! Voice in the darkness, the whisperer. Well, Rock Lobster! Well, I'll do that again. <laughs> that was so bad. I thought it was kind of funny. Uh, I'll just, right, we take either one. Yeah, I'll do it. Right, uh, we love to watch. Rock Lobster. Sorry, I have to restart. <laughs> we, lo- we love to watch. Rock Lobster. Hey, voice in the darkness. Speak up! Rock Lobster! everyone works uh hey pete <laughs> hey aaron how you doing I, good i want to say when you we took a, a couple whisper t- in the dark i know we uh oh thanks hon uh we we uh we took a couple takes of that all bad so whatever you're gonna hear is not good yeah. but my uh, other version was us doing um I ain't nothing but crying. I'm just uh, whispering in the dark. That's pretty good. Uh, but uh, it was funny because when we went to take a second take, as you can tell, Peter whispered Rock Lobster. And then when I when I asked him what he was saying, he yelled it. And when he started the second take, it took him two tries to not yell Rock Lobster because how could you possibly not? yell rock lobster like the amount of uh, self-control peter it took to even whisper it twice is impressive <laughs> rock lobster rock lobster like <laughs> can't stop from going up i had a tagline for this so i read both of these stories which we'll get to what they are in a second if you can't same the title these two stories of lovecraft and i've read about 75 percent of it at this point uh i think we might we should try to do maybe like a 30 minute wrap up uh, episode on, on this this big month, but anyways, that's here neither here nor there. Although it might be there, you'll find out later. Um, but I, I I thought the tagline should this be that uh, Lovecraft uses the term queer so much it's almost like he knew it would someday be a slur <laughs> <laughs> he's just getting on ahead of it he says it's like i i know that's the joke about lovecraft he uses words over and over because it's like he can't think of other ones but these two stories there's like one paragraph that uses it four times and like it obviously just describes something at the time that was odd and strange which is why later on uh bigots use that as a slur against lgbtq people but it's like it's somehow he was like being what a fucking big at Lovecraft was, it was kind of like he was honed in. He's like, I got a feeling this is really gonna hurt people someday, so I'm I'm locked in. He wrote for Weird Tales. The synonym was right there, buddy. Yeah, I know. Just call it weird, dude. He's like, Strange. weird's never gonna Odd. be like that big of a slur. <laughs> no, it might no, be something no. that like you tell your kids not to call other people, but that's about it. Yeah, I really gotta hone in on like, put your money down. What's gonna be the slur? But anyways, uh, if you never heard us before, where we love to watch, we're a movie podcast. We pick a theme and we do movies over the course of usually a month around that theme. And this is our double month summer of Lovecraft, where we're spending July and August. Going through uh, mostly Lovecraft adaptations, in some cases, uh, some works inspired by Lovecraft as opposed to a direct adaptation. This week's a lot of fun. I've been looking forward to this one. So uh, we're doing a double feature. We're doing Call of Cthulhu, 
And uh, Whisper in the Darkness, Call of Cthulhu is from 2005. Uh, Whisper, in Whisper in the Dark. Sorry, Whisper in Whisper in Darkness. He loves to like have his titles in a way that that somehow like the color from out of space as opposed to the color out of space. But anyways, yeah, you you you've been having a lot of trouble with the titles this month. Uh, I have. They just think- don't like you. You read it in your head, and you're like you're you're adding little uh, words that aren't there. And then when I say it out loud, it's wrong. Uh, yeah, he likes he likes his like purple very like leaden prose um and sometimes it's beautiful and sometimes it's like it's like wait that's so unruly why don't you make it like whisper in the dark nope yeah. whisper yeah. in darkness whisper in darkness uh but but what's interesting about both these movies is uh so uh they were done in the style as if they had been released when the short stories themselves came out so call of cthulhu is a silent movie or a uh, uh, approximation, approximation. <laughs> yeah, it's a it's yeah. a silent film. It's, yeah, no it's, di- it's a dialogue. It is a film. silent film, but it's 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 not just a silent film because they ha- they tried to use techniques. They do use some modern techniques. They have a whole name for it: monster scope, I believe it's called. Where no, they no, are mythoscope, Myth- mythoscope. Sorry, uh, yeah, they have a name for it called mythoscope. Where they're trying to shoot it using techniques as well. Not all of them. There's still modern techniques. There's CGI and in uh, Whisper in Darkness, especially. But uh, and then they shot Whisper in Darkness like uh, a 1930s monster movie. The we in these sentences is the H.P. Lovecraft Historical Society, which uh, not just has uh, produced these movies or people involved in them have made, directed, written, starred in these movies. Uh, they've also uh, are the creators behind the H.P. Uh, Podcraft podcast, which kind of started by going through like a half hour episode on uh, each Lovecraft story and now just kind of does other other horror stuff. They also produce kind of radio plays based on Lovecraft stories. And uh, as I just learned this week, uh, a couple couple months ago, they released on like Audible and other audiobook things uh, a full – because their, their narrations that they do as part of the podcast, they just do little snippets, are always so good and so compelling and that can be difficult with Lovecraft's purple prose – and so I was super excited to find out that they had released a uh, 52-hour every single Lovecraft story audiobook read by their team and their group uh, that kind of I, – I listened to The Call of Cthulhu on it actually today. It did not disappoint. It really met their kind of uh, level of excellence in narration that uh, we've heard in snippets on um, on their podcast. So, yeah, they, they really are kind of these people that – not not necessarily I, – I, I hesitate to say keeping Lovecraft alive, but really adding both creatively and analytically and critically works in the Lovecraft genre. Ooh, and wow. in multiple – in so many mediums too, yeah. right? They're, they're, one of their big things they kicked off was um, they sort of revitalized uh, this role-playing game for Call of Cthulhu. So that's Yeah, that's how they started, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. And then they obviously are doing, like you said, they're doing a podcast. They've done these sort of uh, Mercury style uh, radio dramas where they adapt the stories into sort of similar to the the War of the Worlds. Yeah. uh, Orson Welles thing that you've heard before. They're each about an hour and 20 minutes and and I've only heard one of them, but uh, it was really good. And uh, obviously uh, they get into films and I actually... I think the coolest thing they've done um, is they adapted Call of Cthulhu into a uh, interactive experience. So not quite a game, but not quite a novel where 
in the in the story, as we'll get to, a character, our main character, opens up a box full of uh, letters and notes and, and such, and that sort of kicks off the mystery for him. And you can order for like – it's expensive. It's like 180, 200 bucks. I don't know. You can order this like ornate box from them and like read through the story in whatever order you want and uh, has all these like – artifacts and pieces of paper and shit so like they're really they're really very much about like uh tackling tackling many mediums to yeah modernize uh lovecraft and i and, and also in their i've noticed in their podcasts and in their films they try and push away from a lot of the racism yeah in the, when they're adapting it they're not like well uh, Lovecraft said that these people were all a bunch of uh, X race, so we're gonna make them that instead. Yeah, like, that's well, well. Actually, we can we can soften the edges here and make this a little bit more uh, modernized. Yeah, and they kind of talk about. We'll talk about this more when we get into the Whisper in the Darkness movie. They recognize his faults and flaws, which I combined into flots. Flots. Uh, flots. They, they got a lot of flots. Yep. Actually, um, I'm making it more efficient by stopping you. Thank you. Please yeah. do. They, uh, like, even in storytelling, like, as a person, but also in the ways that he kind of, they, they've said, like, as you go through the stories and they analyze it, like, sometimes they're laughing at how bad the stories are. They really hone in, I think, what's interesting about m- most stories on the podcast. But as we'll see when we talk about Whisperer and Darkness, like, they were like, this is a really good first two acts. Lovecraft wasn't always great at endings. And so they've added kind of a third act to the story that uh, and we'll talk about whether it works or it doesn't work, but they they don't treat Lovecraft as gospel. They they treat it as you know a, a lot of uh, inspiring horror tropes that have kind of lived on and have you know inspired these other components of of horror medium, especially the Call of Cthulhu tabletop game and and stuff like that, which is how they met and something that I I haven't played just because I either didn't have cool enough friends or uh, or something, but just none of my friends really played tabletop games growing up, so I missed out on all that D&D stuff. And now at 35, trying to get a group together to do something like that to give it a try seems like a pretty huge task. <laughs> um, but, uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, I tried to get a bunch of friends recently together to just play. This is much shorter and much simpler, the, the thing board game. Yeah, you sent like, me a picture of everyone yeah. playing. And we were we were trying really hard, but like we were all like half inebriated and like trying to learn the rules to a new game. And I was like, "All right, we're just not, yeah, we're just not ready for this right now." It, it really is something that they don't treat as gospel. I noticed that especially Call of Cthulhu is. I forgot I hadn't read it since I was in college, and I forgot like that is one of the stories where you don't need personal context on Lovecraft's life to be like, oh, it's racist. Uh, a lot of racism <laughs> in this, uh, and they. I think they do a good job in the movie where like the the quote unquote racist African voodoo tribe that's in Lovecraft's story is just like some dudes like. I think they they do a good job of making it not not uh, race based, and it's like a group of different ethnicities that are kind of in the Cthulhu cult. Um, whereas, like in the story, Lovecraft hammers at home, like you know where they're from and what their skin color is, and how that plays a part into their uh, quote unquote barbarism. 
Um, yeah, I, I think the movies do a good job of steering away from this, despite being pretty, on every other level, pretty close adaptations. Um, yeah. They, they do do the thing that a movie we were talking about earlier in the month does, where, uh, for Whisper in the Darkness, where they take the full story and then they add more to it. Um, and, but they, they tend to really love the language and love trying to figure out ways to make that heavy language adapt to a film format. And they're, but they're, they're filmmakers. Their interest in filmmaking is uh, equal to or greater than their interest in Lovecraft. So the two guys that are primarily lead, steering the ship for these two uh, adaptations are Sean Branny and Andrew Lehman. Yep. Andrew Lehman uh, directed Call of Cthulhu, which came first and is only about 40. Yeah, it's 47 minutes. Um, and then Sean Branny produced it alongside Andrew Lehman. Uh, the screenplay was also written by Sean Branny. Yep. Then they flipped for uh, Whisper in the Darkness, which is an hour and four minutes. So No, hour much, and 40 much, minutes. Oh, sorry. 104 minutes. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, sorry. Bad notes. Um and, and, and Sean Branny uh, directed the uh, an hour and 44 minute uh, adaptation of Whisper in Darkness. And he also produced it and also helped write the script. And Andrew Lehman sort of stepped back from directing to write and produce. Um, and it, it, it kind of makes that more charming. It's sort of like there's this band I love called Dr. Dog. And sometimes when they're playing, like they'll be like, like, I've seen them multiple times play the same song where different members of the band are playing um, banjo on it. <laughs> and, uh, and, like, I, I I love it because it has that sort of pick up and play. We're all just trying to have fun here. We're all just trying to get experience working in film. We're all just trying to make this project work. Um, I'll get to it later. But in Whisper and Darkness, there's this uh, great – sorry – I'll get to it later, but in Call of Cthulhu, there's this great moment where a sea captain is going across this vast sea, and he's going to this this island with cyclopean uh, mammoth architecture and yada yada. And they, and then I was watching the making of. They literally just built this fake sea and this like yeah. all this fake ocean sets in the backyard of the captain who's piloting the ship. It wasn't like yeah. in their buddy's backyard. It was in their like buddy who is the captain of the movie. Well, it's yeah. So and, it's so charming. And it, ha it has a very handmade quality, but still looks really good. Like I love the effect of in that same set, they use clearly cotton balls as clouds. Um, and they, and they have like these very menacing cloud, cloud uh, arrays that come up. But like, it's done so well using like what I assume is just gluing a bunch of cotton balls together. And it's still like gives you this, this feeling of like terror and doom and stuff like that. So they do a really good job. And they also, I don't know if they did this on purpose. My guess would be they did, but it seems like they specifically set out to uh, adapt to very well known, very well liked Lovecraft stories that B hadn't really been adapted before. Uh, because they are both very difficult to adapt. They they are stories uh, that are mostly someone uh, either uh, reading in journals or 90% uh, letter correspondence remembering. 
<laughs> like it, he doesn't even like read the letters. He's like, look, I, I pretty much memorized this verbatim in Whisper in the Darkness. Let me just tell it to you. And then it, you know, read, it has a full recollection of the letter. But they are very like, you know, Lovecrafty and like pouring over journals and investigation. Uh, Cthulhu, like that's all it is. Cthulhu is such a weird story because it's uh, basically this guy going through his uncle's journals. So you read some of his uncle's journals and then his uncle has also collected other accounts. And so he's going through those and then eventually he meets the sea captain's wife and goes through his stuff too. Like that's the story. And, and those are difficult to adapt. It's why – uh, it's why Lovecraft is, is very difficult to make movies out of sometimes, even if the core ideas are good. And I, I think I think it feels like to me they specifically set out to challenge themselves to take these uh, loved Lovecraftian stories and turn them into uh, movies. And I, I think they do – both of them do a fantastic job uh, of like – of attempting to – uh, kind of film the unfilmable to steal a name of a another podcast that covers Lovecraftian horror stuff. Uh, oh, what's that podcast Duckfeet. called? Uh, it's called Unfilmable <laughs> <laughs> from Duckfeed TV. It's really good. I check it out. Um, I would definitely but, recommend that. Yes, it's you know th- these are like prime examples. Like Color Out of Space is a good example of um, a Lovecraft story that the length hurts it from just being an easy thing to adapt, but it's like it is a story of all these things that are happening uh, that you could actually make a movie out of. Uh, this really is. These are both like just very like people reading letters heavy. And that's difficult, even if that's really the kind of horror that Lovecraft uh, wrote. And I think they both solve for it very well. Um, so, have I'm you ever re- seen Hills of Eyes 2? No. Uh, the original Hills of Eyes 2? Uh, also, no. There's a there's a fun little moment, and I'm, I'm not sure if you've heard of this. Uh, a dog has a flashback. <laughs> To, to the events, I think of the first movie. I feel like we, I feel like we may have talked about it in the Hills Have Eyes episode because I definitely have heard you giggle about it before, but I've not seen it. It's it's great. Um, so a dog has a flashback because uh, we think about our dogs having that kind of internal life all the all the time, right? Um, our dogs just sitting, reminiscing about the past, uh, particularly the events to a movie um, in scenes that they weren't in. Um, but the the reason I bring that up is because uh, you always want to bring it up. <laughs> I always bring it up because I need to find a way to to, to put in there that, that a dog has a flashback in a movie. But um, that that is very much the experience of Call of Cthulhu when you first read it, and actually why I didn't like reading Call of Cthulhu the first time I read it because it is like framing device within framing device within framing device. He finds a he finds a set of letters from a crazy guy who's telling the stories of another crazy guy who met a guy and then like and like it it, it, it uh it's very annoying I think when you're first reading it and you're not really aware of where the story is going but once yeah. you get a sense of the fact that you are basically being uh, intentionally or not you are being metatextually almost, uh, you know, whatever, n- 90 years before House of Leaves, you are being dragged into a cosmic horror mystery b- about an obsessed person diving down a rabbit hole of a thing he can never fully figure out. And you're just tearing at these scraps, too. And the and these hard breaks where it's like it changes to like a new character or a new uh, type of story or a newspaper versus a letter yada yada those hard breaks in the story actually make it feel very um 
very fun as a short story, Call of Cthulhu. And that's why I think a lot of people think it's like their favorite Lovecraft story. Or a lot of people take it as their favorite Lovecraft story. Um, Whisper in Darkness is similar. It's about an obsessed researcher going down a rabbit hole. It doesn't have that same sort of structure where it's like story within stories. It's largely just a guy saying, hey, this weird thing happened to me. Here's some background. Um, but I, I still think it's very compelling in that it is a like – it's him getting these letters that get progressively weirder and like more frightening. And you picture the reader just sitting there and going like, oh shit, like these came a few days later and things are going wrong. And he's writing these letters that are like not getting answered because the next letter has so much more insane stuff going on. And like it's truly terrifying when the letter comes in that typed all of a sudden, instead of a handwritten thing, is comes typed and it's like, everything's yeah. fine. Come visit. So, I, um, lo- like, I love that. Yeah. I love yeah. that. But the reason I bring up the dog in, in Hills of Eyes, too, is because, like, cinematic language is very different. In, yeah. in, in a cinematic language, we, we're used to editing. Editing is, like, the language of cinema in a way that, like, we're used to, um, oh, well, we're going to go from this scene and then we're going to sort of, you know, tumble down the rabbit hole and we're sort of going to give the movie the benefit of the doubt for a lot of, I, I like to I like to joke that um, this is someone else's quote, I forget who, but you get 90 minutes and then every minute over that you have to, you have to earn. I usually give that to a movie, like around 80, 90 minutes, I'm like, I will keep tumbling down this rabbit hole with you as long as you like and then we hit 90 minutes and I'm like, you know, I'm going to need you to, to wrap this up or figure out a form. Um, with film, you're willing to do that. With stories, you're like, another chapter break another break but like so the language is very different and call of cthulhu had to figure out a way to adapt that and still make it cinematic so it added some content to sort of round it out whisper and darkness also had to add content because audiences have changed um like would you be would you be happy aaron if at the end of the story the end of the story which is the end of the original H.P. Lovecraft story from 100 years ago um, was just him finding George Akeley's face in a jar. Uh, yeah, I mean, I I think it would have been okay. Like, uh, if, if, that's, if they had done the 60-minute, 70-minute version of it. And I also think to get to the point where Akeley's face is there with 40 minutes to go, they rush through a lot of the tension building. Uh, that the story does from like these like they kind of and that's fine like it actually works well for the movie but i i also see it as like the slow burn twist movie which would have been effective here i think like you spend a lot more time on him finding out more and things not happening the way he was expecting and seeing him like go down a panic thing so but by the time he's there that twist has an effect now this movie cuts down the first uh, two thirds of the book into about twenty five minutes. It wouldn't have it wouldn't have made the same impact if it had kept everything else the same. If that makes sense, but I, I that's not to say I don't think a movie could have been designed where that reveal is is terrifying. Think of like uh, who did like House of the Devil or some shit. Like he could have done that. But I, ju- I just think that the I just think that yeah, I just think that the. The idea of human parts in a jar that you can see, and I, I don't want to get too grotesque here, but the idea 
we we have demanded more from our horror and our thrillers since then. Like I think even the audiences in the 1950s who had gotten used to and, and Whisper in Darkness is very much like a, it feels like a 1950s, even though it came 30 years before that, a 1950s style um, spooky space movie about invaders coming in and being like, we promise you all this these great riches. You just have to yeah. put your head in a jar. Um, yeah, it feels very much it feels ahead of its stuff. time. Yeah, um, um, but I th- I feel like all that stuff would have been shocking and thrilling for a 1920s audience but for even a 1950s audience they would have been like all right so Akeley was a puppet man what else you got <laughs> uh yeah i think like i said it's not that i don't think a movie could have been designed around that reveal but you they would have had to change more than just like cutting off the movie 35 minutes before this one ends i say we start actually getting into the more specifics of both movies absolutely um peter without further ado do you want to talk about Call of Cthulhu and the Whisperer in the Nighttime? <laughs> the case, the curious case of the Whisperer dog at moonlight. The curious case of Benjamin Whisperer Darkness Button. <laughs> That'd be a much better title. Yeah, let's talk about it. time for alternate taglines i would never have time for that i mean we rarely have time we usually make time this time we have so little time we don't can't make the time we can't even we can't even make time how do you even even make time (laughs) dude far out (laughs) uh so i'll do a quick recap on we'll start with call of cthulhu it makes sense from a lot of different levels one shorter b uh came out first both in movie form and in story form c fuck you that was enough reasons. How dare you ask for a C? Uh, C is for cookie and for no more answers for you. Um, you really showed this figurative uh, figurative uh, guest. It was extremely I'll you, pedantic. I'll tell you what, the figurative audience in our head is so annoying. They're constantly criticizing me. Um, I don't know what that's about. Uh, C is also for Call and for Cthulhu, and that's the story we're doing. Uh, quick recap. It is about someone who finds a box of uh, journals and reads them. The end. <laughs> uh, yeah. Guy who what? finds his uh, sister's diary and decides, uh, like, hey, uncle's I'm going to find out who, who she likes. Ooh, let's see if this gets a little naughty. And he finds out, ooh, found out about some god worshippers called the Cthulhu cult. That's very um, naughty. Ooh, naughty time. <laughs> and then he's also like, well, that's bad. Apparently there's this fucking elder god who lives in the ocean who like, when he awakens, he's not going to awaken until we no longer have uh, concepts of good and bad and we just like to dance and have fun and shout. And from this is from the book, I think, not necessarily from the movie, but... Um, do you think the song Twist and Shout was a I actually, a I actually thought the, the Heisley brothers, like, because they say he's going to come, he's he's going to come back uh, and teach us how to shout. That is like a direct quote from the story. And I now imagine Cthulhu rising and going, well, wait a minute. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, 
I feel the oh, pain of eternal sufferings all over. Yeah. <laughs> a little bit quieter now, because everyone's dead. Um... <laughs> But yeah, he uh, yeah he's he's gonna come back. He used to rule us, and there's this cult that keeps his memory alive. And he is at some point when we have like lost our uh, morality, he's gonna come back and rule us again and teach and, us how and to party. Specifically, specifically, him and some of the old gods want to um, have an interest in, in in pushing us towards that, pushing us yep. to uh, an amoral. Um, uh, kind of view of the universe and have us, you know, t- taking joy in whatever pleasures we want, whether they're violent or, you know, would be condemned by any religious group, right? Yep, because that's the thing. The old gods are neither good or bad. Uh, they just they just exist and have wishes. And, and, and they often they they love chaos. They love chaos. They love, they love chaos. They love some chaos. Break me off a piece of that chaos gum. Um, so, I would say the old gods... If they could, Old? if they could get anything on their hands and their grubby, slimy mitts, it would be the Chaos Emerald. Oh, you fucking nerd! Um, and they push us towards this amorality through they can kind of psychically influence things. So uh, through our dreams, through our kind of subconscious uh, thoughts, they are pushing us towards that. And the members of the Cthulhu cult are helping. Uh, but the idea is that Cthulhu is actually in the bottom of the ocean, and this is a very Lovecraftian theme used in other Lovecraftian-inspired work. But uh, large bodies of water are like this bulwark against the old gods' influence. Not they're not you know as as when Cthulhu rises or as the, he starts to rise, things will get more chaotic or chaotic, as literally fifty percent of this the hosts of the show would say. Um, <laughs> but but also as you start to come to understand that Cthulhu exists and learn more about it, he's also able to kind of influence you more and potentially drive you mad with the knowledge of the fact that we are, we are uh, at some point, there is no, there's no like Christian God or Jesus or something like that coming to save us. At some point, the earth will be once again ruled by these elder things. Uh, and then the, the other part of the journal is that, uh, this boat captain, uh, the island that Cthulhu and his minions are on rises. Uh, and a lot of people go fucking nuts because he gets out and eats some people. And uh, the island sinks back down and the boat captain goes crazy. And at the end of the story, uh, our narrator is like, I'm also, yeah, I'm not doing great. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> Things not good. Uh, in the movie version... Which is actually what we're talking about. He actually is in an insane asylum telling his doctor to burn everything that he's read. Um, but it is – even the first time I watched the movie and read the story, right, I was a little bit confused because it is like a flashback into a flashback into a flashback. Uh, so, like, when you come back out to the guy reading it again in the movie, I was like, wait, who the fuck's this guy? Uh, his voice <laughs> sounds – you know, so – and uh, this guy. And I will say, like, I have one mild criticism of the movie. It's not the movie's fault because it's not what it's trying to do. But as I've said many times, uh, the way that the the people in the Lovecraft Society, historical society, read Lovecraft's prose is amazing. And so I do think there's something a little bit lost in making a silent movie. Uh, And something that immediately upon Whisperer in the Darkness starting – and you hear like the overlay narration by one of I forget which one is performing it, but like they're all really good at it. Um, it's like, ooh, yeah, this was missing a little from Cthulhu. So that's kind of my one criticism. But otherwise, it is this great like forty-five minute silent movie. Uh, they have kind of a claymation or like King Kong type 
animated version of Cthulhu that shows up at the end. They have all these like miniature sets that are well designed. Um, it's it's really great. I've seen it now about four times, and my appreciation of it only grows. Uh, unsurprisingly, hitting kind of a uh, an apex with just being surrounded by all the Lovecraft stuff that we have this month. That it was it was it was really like I just really like it. Peter, what are your thoughts? Um, I'm really into it too. It's uh, it's a really impressive effort. It's a low budget movie that uh, decides to lean into the fact that no, they're not going to be able to devise these massive sets. So instead, what they do is they leaned into the past. They said, "What techniques do they do?" Particularly, like when they show you uh, Cthul- the, the island that Cthulhu is chilling on. Um, they say like, oh, what do they do in uh, cl- uh, classic, uh, you know, monster movies? What do they do in the King Kong like you just called out? What do they do in German expressionist movies with these crazy angles and these these cardboard sets, but they're painted in such a way that they look like just insane geography? Um, and I I was really impressed by that. And earlier this earlier in this uh, series. We talked about Colorado space, and I think the the, the landing point I, I I came to was low budget's fine. Like it, you can have a low budget, just know that you have a low budget. And uh, very often with uh, with Colorado space, I, I I think my final point on that was basically it's fine to have a low budget, but just make sure you either have somebody who can cheaply put together special effects for you that are charming or have uh actors give performances that can make it compelling yeah well, either has to have good either has to have good performances or interesting special effects call of cthulhu happens to have both for its budget but like this kind of fixes the color out of space problem where color out of space i was like gorgeous photography uh at mm. times very nice production value but the performances were just like entirely untenable and the special effects were often uh, really uninteresting, and it really just this like, oh well, I'm really glad. It's like, it. what can what can you throw together on like the CGI program that comes with my MacBook Pro? Exactly. Um, exactly. Uh, yeah, and I think that these both these movies, while Whisper in Darkness kind of falls into the the, pat, the pratfalls of um of a little that. bit, like a tiny let's see, bit. let's see, let's see what we can do with CGI when this all all this stuff could have existed in our head. What these movies both have is tremendous performances. They're so fun. Yeah, and they, they're great performances both from the silent perspective or we'll get into Whisper in Darkness. Um, but uh, they also like the, – I think the other big difference – and again, this isn't to sound mean to the color of outer space, which I think we, we both said like is very charming while not being a particularly great movie – uh, like th- these guys are talented filmmakers. Like they are working with a low budget, but they are very good f- directors, very good writers. Like the parts they decide to include, modify to to keep a story going is very is very well chosen. I want to talk about this even more on Whisper in Darkness because they're mimicking a '30s horror movie means more directing than a silent movie, which was a lot more point and shoot. But they capture that really well. And when the camera kind of swoops into the Cthulhu Island and you see all the miniature work that they created or like the storm of the sea, like they they do it an extremely good job of making movies. They are talented craftsmen. They're the type of people that like in a perfect world would someone would give them a hundred million dollar to make like a really 
a really like big budget like Godzilla movie or something like they'd be fucking Michael Donahue like someone give them a bunch of money because they are very competent and they just are working from like minimal means and making the approximations of like these long lost era films uh, really compelling in their own right both as like a pastiche of a 20s horror silent movie but also just as like a compelling movie to watch in 2019. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I think that the I think that these movies are very impressive and they're movies that I definitely wanted to cover on the show because I think that uh, especially the issue you talked about earlier, the, the movies can be kind of buried on the site behind a store, which is a shame because uh, I don't think people are just going to necessarily take a swing on, I don't know. 35 to $45, including shipping well, worth of, of uh, these two movies. Um, you can do that, or you can invent a time machine back to when it was streaming on Netflix. Um, yeah, you could. Those are your that. options. Back, back when Netflix used to get cool, weird, uh, small acquisitions, but they didn't necessarily uh, produce them. It was. Uh, how would, yeah, how would you time. think about instead? Uh, the eighth season of the Boss Baby cartoon. <laughs> I completely agree with you. I think that these are impressive movies, and I wanted to, I wanted us to call them out because they are in many ways. Because these this came from people who were trying to adapt the stories and be able to stamp the name of the story on the movie. Um, the first one, Call of Cthulhu, is about ninety to ninety five percent the original story. It they, is. Uh, Call of Cthulhu is not a very long story. If you're looking for a Lovecraft story to dive into, uh, you know, go go in knowing that it's going to jump around a little bit. There's going to be framing devices within framing devices, but it's not that long and it's really not that hard to read compared to some of his stuff. The the only major thing uh, that I think they change is some of the racial components and the ending is him in an insane asylum as opposed to just telling the reader, like, things are going to be different for me. I no longer feel joy. (laughs) Whoopsie daisies. Uh, You ever read a book that doesn't make you feel joy? Because that's a bad book. (laughs) I think they give you a lot of – there's a lot of small decisions being made about flattening out the story to make it more about – are the man um, who's played by Matt Foyer, who will be yep. the lead in both of these movies. Um, yep. I guess Call of Cthulhu doesn't have a traditional lead because of the, the structure we were talking about before. We but, keep cutting back. Well, he's the guy we keep cutting back to and going, oh, yeah, him. He's the frame, you know. Yeah. Um, it, it, Matt, but Matt Foyer gives excellent performances in both of these movies. And yep. they do some things to kind of centralize it around him telling a story. They make a lot of smart decisions that I think you would have to be pretty damn familiar with the original story to be able to call out and be like, oh, they changed that. Um, And I love that because they're just like, we're adapting to a new medium. This is a Lovecraft story. This isn't quite Shadow over Innsmouth where it's like there's like three or four big action sequences. But this is this is a story, a Lovecraft story that ends. It's called Call of Cthulhu. At the end of the story, they see Cthulhu. They ram their fucking boat into Cthulhu, which temporarily kills him. It sends him back to his slumber in Relier. And then, you know, it it, uh, it, it all comes back to to a, a, a hilt. So it's, it's in a weird way a story that's perfect to adapt in that there's a hero at the end who gets to fuck up Cthulhu with a big action sequence. And then also... I mean, he's a hero, but like he doesn't get a hero's welcome because nope. his, uh, he, his brain breaks. Exactly. Uh, our hero, the Swede, he goes on home and uh, – did you catch anything that I just said right there? 
the the Swedish guy goes home. Yeah, he's 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 Norwegian. It's and they're not they're not Swedes, Mac. They're Norwegian. Okay. Uh, anyways, so uh, the Swede <laughs> was that a joke? I'm not uh, sure what you're doing. I'm referencing the thing where he calls he calls the Norwegian a Swede. Got it. I'll tell you what. Let me memorize that movie and we'll record the rest of the podcast. Because <laughs> you throw out any obscure lines that that I, I haven't seen that thing since we recorded a fucking episode on it three years ago, Peter. Um, yeah. You I'll tell you what. Like, here's my here's my thought about the thing. Good movie. Good movie. You can edit all that out. It's fine. Um, yeah, but yeah, they, they the Swede uh, basically doesn't even – you don't even get to see him go mad. He's just – he they just sort of uh, go investigate where he went and he's already dead. Yeah. But one of the best visual touches is his uh, co-captain or whatever who um, starts like uh, – he starts kind of falling down to the ground staring and screaming. And when we cut back to him, he's aged 50 years in very convincing age makeup mm-hmm. and there's just blood pouring out of his eyes. Yeah, there's – This there's... is this is a pre-Haze code fake silent movie. <laughs> <laughs> this is – it it is like lovely, uh, and yeah, it's, and it, and, it's and terrifying. Like that shot is like legitimately terrifying. The I love the the idea that this thing that it's not just a big old fucking monster. This is a, Cthulhu is a thing that exists between phases in in the universe, phases in reality. Like seeing this thing will make you go mad. It will it will make you not understand things. There's a reference in Whisperer in Darkness that um, certain creatures don't photograph well because their molecules vibrate at a different frequency than our uh, molecules vibrate at. There's something about looking, just looking at this thing that like your brain can't collate its contents to steal to steal a phrase from from lovecraft in the story uh the original story yeah uh, and 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 it made it literally the idea of him just like getting old all of a sudden and his hair going white and him basically like going insane until he dies is like not untenable when you're familiar with what's going on here yeah and i think you know peter uh, we talked a little bit about this at our Lovecraft intro episode, but like the 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 Penguin paperback that had a bunch of collected stories I bought was called – it said Call of Cthulhu on it. And I was surprised how short this story was. I was expecting it to be longer. I kind of liked it, but I liked reading more about the story than I did reading the story because, you know, reading about what Cthulhu was and what all that stuff meant and just literally sitting and – thinking about the idea of an elder god under the ocean who's like going to rise and who like is infecting us all in our subconscious and these like waves that they send out that's only diminished by like the size of the ocean and that that much water while like being such not just a monster or creature but like truly this like unknowable god that drives people insane like it was so compelling and i'm i guarantee i'm not even close to the first person who like was pulled into lovecraftian fiction by like finding out about cthulhu first like seeing some pictures on the internet hearing the name cthulhu and being like what the fuck is this and then eventually finding my way to lovecraft and the story but like this was always so compelling because it, it, as we talked about in the intro episode, like speaks to an area that I find horrifying on a multiple different levels. And from that perspective, there is a lot of this that makes it kind of the quintessential Lovecraft story. Racism. It has people reading journals to tell a story. 
And then it also has someone being driven mad by knowledge of the universe as they discover out that that the universe itself un- is uncaring towards man and there's these elder abominations that will eventually rise and take over. We are nothing but playthings to them. Like it really is in the 30 pages that this story takes up kind of hits all the all the Lovecraftian stuff that we typically identify as Lovecraftian, good and bad. Uh, yeah, 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 and and you're you're right because there's 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 some racism. There's the fact that uh, one character on the research journey. I don't really want to get into the details of like this professor did what because it's not that interesting. This the story is largely a, a, a bunch of sequences of people telling like their run-ins with this call this call of Cthulhu this cult um, and, and and the god that surrounds it. Um, one of the characters that is in this little group gets murdered by a um, a black guy. It's not zoomed later on. He doesn't call him a black guy. He calls him the softer N word, and he uh, it, it, it traces back to the scene that's going to happen later in the Louisiana swamps, where uh, Lovecraft is not shy about saying a bunch of black people were worshiping this demon in the jungle. Or the swamp. Yeah. Um, but in the movie, what it does very wisely is like, it doesn't just make them all white and Hispanic and black and like sort of mix up the races here. It also like doesn't call upon anything specifically from uh, animist African traditions in the dance that I could see. It, it, it calls no. more upon like cavemen, <laughs> like our, our true our true roots as a species, similar to uh, how Bone Tomahawk was like. These aren't Native Americans. These are these are like cave people from before the time where there were white men and Native Americans. Yeah, and it, it yeah it doesn't it doesn't make him any sort of like uh it's it's racially diverse uh of the people that are kind of chanting and it kind of it, 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 you're right they're not they're not like wearing any specific like somewhat racist like clothing or something that would be like used to designate There's no characters. bones so the, through noses yeah. or tiki's yeah. or any of that sh- that any of that shit that would like specifically mark it as like you know, an African or a, um, a it's not knocking down Cajun culture. It's yeah, not in some ways it does better than some King Kong movies, even recent ones. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I would say but, so too. But uh, yeah, so it's... Wait, hold on. It's, a King Kong movie that came out, I believe, the same year as this movie, 2005. 2005, yeah. That's funny. Yeah, we talked about that in That's the funny King parallel. Kong episode. It, it basically just says, yeah, they're just a cult. There's one, you know, there is, I think, a very complicated way to discuss that because one thing that like the sinking city i've heard does i haven't played it yet which is kind of this new lovecraft game but it's getting a lot of platitudes for or it's getting a lot of um praise for like being one of the first major lovecraft adaptations to kind of address the racist components of it like head on the idea that like uh the i haven't played it but i've read like the the characters from the shadow of Innsmouth, which were like you know, proceed as like the the problems of, of of mixing the races, and like they are treated as second class citizens is almost like an analogous to our current discussion about like our current discussion about immigration and how fucking racist some people are in this country and stuff like that. But like they are seen as victims of like white oppression based on and colonial oppression based on what I've read about the game, and it's got a lot a lot of I think I, I'm excited to play it. Uh, and, and I think there's a lot of people who are rightfully saying, like, look, 
you're going to talk about Lovecraft, you're going to make a Lovecraft adaptation, especially one that like is fucking full of racism so that if when people go and say, hey, I saw this movie, I'm going to go back and read the story or I played this game. Is it right to address it or is it right to ignore it? Because obviously you don't want to just depict it uh, for, a, for a variety of reasons. I don't Absolutely. think it's – But either way, it's there, right, in in the work that you're adapting. So uh, I've heard some, some, some good arguments that ignoring it just completely – just pretending it's not part of the story – is also a little bit disingenuous. So my, I mean, my honest answer is that I, I don't, I don't have an easy answer for it. Like I, I understand that point, um, but I also think there is something to be said for being able to kind of take this work and and still pull out the bullshit and and tell the good parts of it. But I also understand the point where it's like. Well, yeah, but then you are literally just ignoring the troubling aspects of the story as opposed to addressing it. So, I I don't have a clean answer, but ultimately, uh, I'm glad they didn't go the route of just like, well, it's Lovecraft. We got to adapt it the way you want it. We're not going to solve the concept of antiquated racism uh, in these two months, and that was not our goal. But uh, our goal was specifically not to, like... Dance around. Our goal is yeah. specifically not to ignore this stuff. And I think it, it's worth having discussions about this stuff, even if it's worth having discussions about this stuff, even if we are going to change our mind later, um, because I would like to continue the conversation of how do we contend with our racist past? And yeah. I think that especially as two white cis straight guys, like any anything that's problematic or straight up just racist or straight up just yep. bigoted in our in our uh, the stuff we're talking about, um, I don't think we're I don't think it's the onus is on us or people of color to come up with an answer when they're talking about this stuff. I don't I don't I don't think that there is an objective answer, but I think that yeah I think that I like works like what I'm hearing out of Sinking City, um, what I like about Bloodborne that are like, okay, yeah, we're not going to ignore this stuff. We're not just going to bury it. We're going to kind of wrangle with it in our own way. We're going to wrangle with it on our own terms because the guy's dead. He's not making money off of, of this stuff. Um, we're going to wrangle with it in our own terms. We're going to talk about America's awful history with racism in our own terms. And Call of Cthulhu is weirdly enough – even though there's a tribe of, is it presumed Creole? Is it, I think it just says like, or is it Mestizo? I like don't even I don't, know. I don't remember. I know they keep, he keeps in the book. He's like, I don't know. I guess that probably added some voodoo to the proceedings. Yeah. So he's, and he's, and in the term Mestizo, I'm not even sure if that's, that's like appropriate. Um, if I'm passing on um, something similar to the, like the word Eskimo is no longer appropriate. Um, but the, the mixed this race people. Anti- in, this has a lot of anti-Eskimo stuff in it. Too. It does. And it's Eskimo with E-A, like the French spelling, where you're yeah. like, oh, we're getting back to the original racism. Like the first people to really meet these people and be like, no. you're less than us. All I'm saying here is that there's people of color in the bayou, the Louisiana swamp area, and Lovecraft does not treat them with the utmost respect that they deserve. And the movie decides to uh, kind of get away from that by not yeah. pulling specific imagery, not just pulling from our colonialist roots, the stuff that's buried in white people's minds, the stuff that's yeah. like, oh, well, you see a fucking 
I said tiki's or you know bones through the nose or any any of the shit that you would immediately think of in your head. Mm-hmm. Uh, the movie is like, no, we're we're not doing that. Yeah, and and I I guess I just wanted to acknowledge that like us saying good they didn't they didn't do racism. Is, <laughs> it's is not like, enough. No, it's not. And and I've again I've I, I've heard that argument many times, and I'm I'm. I, I sympathetic sounds reductive in a way that's like oh no I get it like I I just I I I get it like I think it's a fair argument to make that just stripping it out isn't isn't good enough I do think they found an interesting way to to not lean into uh, Lovecraft's uh, terrible instincts when it comes to matters of race but I also recognize that that's not that's not like good we tacked over a poster over something so we're, <laughs> yeah. we're, i mean it's worth it's worth discussing acknowledging i don't have an easy answer for it but um you know uh I, if anyone had an easy answer for racism i think we'd probably be in a better place as a, as a society <laughs> i mean um, so don't please. do it is the easy answer but don't do it don't do it yeah. it's like um, white lines so i would say uh, at a minimum if we want to, if we want to put a very up. shitty, terrible bow on this, it's that um, if you're going to adapt works made by someone who is bigoted and back, if you're going to adapt works by someone who has some backwards thoughts about certain cultures, don't just regurgitate that thought. Take it in, think about it, find a way to adapt the core idea of it, or just work around what the message was they were doing there, because just. Passing it on to another generation of people is not much better than saying it yourself. There, There is a little bit of the old, like, your food dropped in shit and it's like, well, here, I wiped out off, I wiped off all the shit. So, <laughs> exactly, exactly. It's like, well, it still touch shit. I don't want, I don't want shit adjacent food despite the fact that you took a dry napkin <laughs> and wiped <laughs> off the shit off it. No, I still don't want it. <laughs> Still shit to me, so I get it. Um, so, uh, Peter, I think uh, in the interest of time, and again, this is re- really short, and it, it has a lot of just um, quick, uh, quick vignettes because that's what the story is. It's it's a quick story, and then it's quick vignettes. But uh, this is this is wholly worth forty five minutes. Actually, I'd be remiss to say a, a couple very quick things. One, so uh, the Lovecraft Historical Society also makes like music in the style of Lovecrafting horror. They've released a few CDs, and so they score both this and Whisper in Darkness, as well as like add music to their readings in the podcast and on some of their audiobook stuff. And it's all really, really good. Like they they are very good at like. It's weird to like release a album of instrumental music in the style of Lovecraft because what what is that like on paper? What the fuck does it mean? It's like when they but, used to release like mu- music inspired by the film Goldeneye. Yeah, like, it's what like it, what? Unless all the songs go bang bang poo poo pa pa ho sex bang. strangled boom yeah. boom. <laughs> um, like that actually makes more sense to me because at least they're they're releasing songs that are like songs. So I don't know, a song about driving fast. I guess that's inspired by Goldeneye. But like this is instrumental music inspired by Lovecraft. Whatever that is, it they they have honed in on that and it works really well in this, especially in this silent movie where uh, the music needs to carry a good portion of the of the load from an audio standpoint. So or all of the load, I guess, from an audio standpoint. The other thing I want to mention is. The fucking poster for this movie 
rules. I was just I literally to get 10 the minutes poster. before we were recording this, I was like, can I get the poster just in my house? And they sell it on their website for whatever, I don't know, 15 bucks. While we're, we kind of got away from the scene, but like, I actually really love the swamp scene. Uh, yeah. I, 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 the idea of this cult out in the swamp who's worshiping a larger demon, but there's also, this, this kind of pulls from the original work, but um, there's also like a lesser uh, greater god that is out in the swamp as well who's sort of a participant or you know present at this this gross ritual that's happening and the idea that they have to like do battle with this cult in in the swamps is like so my shit especially like the idea that they all have like 1920s guns and billy clubs and shit yeah um, that's that's a uh, very much my shit um the the production value in the film while we're on that is really wonderful because they don't shoot the scene like a modern action scene with, like, camera behind someone's head as they're, like, punching yeah. someone. They shoot it like an old-timey scene where, like, you set up a shot, the camera is incredibly fixed. Like, it might as well be bolted to the ground. And people throw punches and you cut between them to add a sense of, of excitement, um, which is the movie leaning into its its strengths. Um, so, if I want to move into final thoughts, uh, I think that the movie being silent leans into its strengths and also it helps save some budget. So, um, they put money into having an awesome score. Which means they didn't have to put money into having um, great sound recording equipment or yep. uh, have a expert sound mixer come in. All this stuff that we take for granted in modern film production that they would have had to either do themselves and it might kind of sound like shit or spend another, I don't know, twenty to $40,000 on another person to add to the set. Uh, they just said, all right, we're just going to put more money into the budget for music and we're not going to have sound effects and it it uh it actually helps increase the production value um there's the text cards look amazing the score is amazing like i said the locations look really really good the props are very convincing um yeah the the silent cards could be from a silent movie they look that good that convincing yeah it's good And, and and even with the small budget they paid attention to the small details and uh that's what i love and one last note um, it, we're adding a theme to this month um, with this entry, and it's dreams as a powerful force. Lovecraft was huge on dreams, um, and we talked about it. We'll be we'll, sorry. We'll talk about it in the Bloodborne episode because there's there's a uh, a large component of dreams there, and dreams being a huge component of how we we sort through our lives. Um, but in this. It's, dreams are like a, a broadcast point, like a radio picking up on signals from the greater gods. And uh, I uh, I love that. I love that theme. Uh, the dreams of unknown unco- Kadaf. There's this one about a city under siege that a guy visits when he dreams that he fucks up the um, the defense of the city because he falls asleep or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um there's there's a lot of there's a lot of great Lovecraft stories where dreams have a specific power and connecting to a dream is connecting to another world and for a very lonely guy um, that's pretty interesting uh, yeah so so Lovecraft was this lonely artist and Wilcox in this is this lonely artist who makes sculptures and such and he's connecting with the other worlds via dreams and so that's kind of where I want to 
And my final thought on is, is the idea that like dreams are being introduced in, into this universe. It's not just all stepping into another world through crazy resonators and, and uh, you know, finding these unknown cities. Sometimes just like laying in your bed in a fucking major metropolitan city can do it. Yeah, this is this is such an effective story. And it's like crazy that like this 30 page template is like where a lot of modern horror comes from. So uh, and the movie's a really good adaptation of it. Um, so yeah, so let's, let's pivot, Peter, uh, pivot. I want you to do the recap for the movie version of whisper in the darkness. What I would like is when you get to the point where it's, uh, cause it basically does a pretty good faithful adaptation of the story up until the last 25 minutes and it adds a, a different third act. Can you turn it over to me? Cause I want to, I want to discuss something that happens in the third act. Uh, before it gets revealed as part of the plot recap. So, take it away, Peter. Plot recap, Whisper in Darkness. So, The Whisper in Darkness is about a college professor at Miskatonic, uh, which will be coming back when we talk about Reanimator. Um, it's already been mentioned when we talked about From Beyond, I believe. It's uh, Lovecraft's weird MIT, Harvard, uh, Brown sort of uh, conglomeration college. Um, and he has a correspondence with a an old friend uh named akeley and akeley uh moved to he, he graduated from vermont college and he was this old professor that had a ton of interests including anthropology and math and astronomy and yada yada um akeley was uh out in vermont in his sort of hermit shack hiding away from the world um when he started running into this alien race uh, that starts harassing him and he starts finding footprints on his property and he hires dogs to square off against them and he's shooting at them back and forth and he's writing these letters and he's basically telling uh, Wilmar to stay the fuck away. You know, I might die. Uh, this was not my plan. I wanted to hang out here a few more years. My wife has passed on. I wanted to hang out a few more years here and I wanted to move to San Diego to be with my son. But in the but uh, Wilmar is someone who is a skeptic in the film. He specifically does not believe in the folklore and all that, but he is fascinated by it. Um, similar, I think, similar to both of us, Aaron. We're like we love these crazy paranormal stories, and we love alien stories. And we love like oh yeah, crazy. Like, I fucking. I, do you remember when they were not ancient aliens, but they just used to have the UFO files on the History Channel? Don't believe a fucking word for it. Think it's the best, like, fake doc. Like, if you look at it as, like, someone made a fake documentary about the history of, like, alien cover-ups in this country, like, that shit is entertaining as hell. Like, I love it. <laughs> so, yeah, I um, love it. I love it, too. So, actually, there's a podcast I want to plug here called Expanded Perspectives. Um, and it's, it's like these, the fourth podcast that's not ours we plug. I, I know, Peter. I know. Uh, but there, there's these that's two fine. southern good, like, like just sweet dudes. Um, they're not like goons. There's these two like southern sweet guys who just love talking about alien abductions and paranormal activity, yada yada. And I'll, I'll bring this back around in a moment. But they sound like goons. They're they're super funny. They're su they're super sweet, and uh, they have a great theme song. And they, um, similar to last podcast on the left, when they cover paranormal activity stuff, they'll make jokes about stuff being bullshit, but they'll also just like lean into the fact that like, isn't this just like a cool story? Like, yeah. 
let's not let's not shit on the fact that this is like cool um so anyways uh this story very much reminds me of those guys the expanded perspectives guys because they opened me up to a lot of the the crazy alien abduction stories and uh akeley has a similar one he's writing all these stories to his buddy wilmar and he's saying don't come out here don't come out here and all of a sudden he sends a I type keep getting dogs just keep get, picking up dogs. Just picking up, picking up dogs. Uh, just, I forget if that's in the book or the movie, but he's like, I got six more dogs and four are gone. Yeah, and he's like, <laughs> like the people at the kennel must pick up nuts. All these, yeah, who, stop selling him dogs. Yeah. Well, th- those four got eaten. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, got it. Uh, and the people at the kennel must be like, well, he's definitely doing dog fighting with police dogs, right? And they're like, well, the cash is coming, so who cares? Um, anyways. It's also probably legal at this point. <laughs> 100%. It's in rural Vermont. It's encouraged. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Rural Vermont, people are doing bo- dog fighting. They're just like happy people are talking to each other yeah. um, to make bets. Um, the reason I bring up expanded perspectives is because this is like a classic alien thing where like, oh, he's, he's just sending letters to his friends, sending letters to his friends, and all of a sudden, out of the blue, his tone changes, and he's sending a typewritten letter saying, you know, these guys are actually pretty chill, why don't you come out, like, we'll take a look, and um, yeah. Wilmar, being an idiot, or... Someone who just wants a story to happen. Well, he does, like, go, this is weird, but... Yeah. Okay. Wilmar says, you know what? This is fucking weird, but, like, I, he, in a typical Lovecraft fashion, he takes the dive. I gotta know more. He takes the dive. I gots to. He gots... He, he's gots to. And he takes the dive, takes planes, trains, automobiles, whatever he has to do to get out to rural Vermont just to trains. find us. Just It's just <laughs> trains and automobiles, actually. It's, the, the book is very funny because it, it plots a route that gets him there in the afternoon, and it specifically calls out where, like, eight trains will have to take to get there. And God, like, I, I, that's I, such a Lovecraftian, like, well, I got this paper sitting around. I might as well fill it with shit. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's extremely Lovecraft where, uh, like, in uh, Shadow Over Innsmouth when he talks about architecture for, like, seven pages and you're just like, buddy, clock is ticking. <laughs> um, and that's my favorite Lovecraft I get story. paid by the word. Yeah. <laughs> what if uh, I just list all the train times? And he genuinely seems like a dude who's like, what a marvel the train is. Everyone will be thrilled to see what the train schedule is in rural Vermont. He's such a he was such a fucking hermit. He probably was like he probably had to figure that out to get somewhere at like a time that didn't spook him. So he probably was like, I had to figure it out. It's it's important information to share with my audience. Yeah. So he's uh right. he's he's a real goof. And yeah, so he's a goof. So Wilmar goes traveling uh, off to see his friend, and he he uh, when he arrives at the train station, there's a weirdo there who says, "You know, you're, uh, he's sick, so I'm gonna have to give you a ride." And then super weirdo, he doesn't quite get him all the way there because the bridge is out, and the locals are being extremely weird to him. And this whole interaction getting to the the Akeley place, locals are basically being like, "Yeah, you can go up there, but like, do you, do you really want to get involved here?" And Wilmar being a Lovecraft protagonist is like, yes, I would like to stick my head into the abyss. Yes, I would like it to be eaten by bugs. Yes. Um, So he gets up to the Akeley place. He sees that his friend is incredibly sick. But his friend says, you know, I'll be better in a couple days. That's fine. Like, whatever. Um, So he rests the house. He has these conversations with Akeley about the cosmos and how Einstein was full of shit and all this other stuff uh, about just, you know, earth shattering galaxy brain stuff. 
and uh he uh and and eventually um he realizes like holy shit like maybe he's telling the truth like he starts to see signs of these creatures around and Akeley and uh wilmar one day discovers akeley has gone he runs into a conspiracy with the local people who are running a sort of cult uh to try and communicate with a race of beings that are out on a planet that's not Pluto, but it's similar to Pluto, but we but, can't see it. But it's the ninth planet of the solar system. It's on the outer. Yeah, but they, it was like, uh, they say in the story, too, he's like, they named it Pluto, but that's not the name. Yeah, it's Yagath, which is this planet that's been hidden. hidden. Its true meaning will be hidden from us until we're ready to understand it. And they're trying to communicate with us, but they're saying, and then we get into all this, all this awesome transhumanism stuff where they're saying, your bodies are not fit for space travel the way ours are. There's this race of people called the Migo, uh, not to be confused with the hip hop band Migos. Um, they're called Migos because they're Amigos. They're friends, and they dropped the A at the end, uh, at the beginning. So I thought so. Amigos. When people go like, "You want me to go to space?" They're like, "Yeah, you go, Migo." Yeah, that's, you go. That that's also a good Migo? theory where the band Migos came from. Um, they they came from Yagath. Um, to... There's some English teachers like it's I go. <laughs> so they they they, spe- they realize this race is trying to both come to Earth to mine, but also they're trying to um, expand the perspectives of human minds. Expanded perspectives plug, and they're uh, they they take your brain, they put it in a canister, and then your brain is safe for space travel. You can go to keep see your body the- laying around, yeah, for later. For later, for use later. Um, and so they're basically pitching Wilmar saying like, listen. Dude, you're so cool. Come with us. Come on. Dude, it's going to it's gonna be fucking sick. And similar to it's, hippies. It's basically just like the movie Road Trip. <laughs> similar to hippies. And anytime you hang out with frat bros in a bar, just because you're having fun in one location does not mean you ever go to a second location Don't go with to either location. bros or hippies. No, not with the Migos, and the, and the not with the Amigos. You don't. You definitely don't go to a second location with them. We are um, the infinite Amigos, and they're uh, they're basically uh, strange space crabs that uh, have trouble dealing with our atmosphere. Um, and while that's happening, the Earth cult is trying to basically say like. All right, we'll uh, we'll uh, we want to get 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 into this this thing. We want to get on the ground floor of the Migos. We want to get on the ground floor of the Migos, which They're will involve an invasion of the planet on a scale that like we can never understand. They say there's enough there's enough Amigos out there in the old universe to uh to there's as many of them as stars. So yeah, we we would lose. So um, at least eight. At least eight. <laughs> um, I mean. Right now, I'm peeking out my window. I'm seeing like three or four. So, eight so, if you really want to be like liberal about the numbers. I see four stars too. I'm assuming they're different. <laughs> so, yeah. So, basically. We live so well, far away from each other, Peter. So How this could they is be the same? This is when Wilmar kind of finds out in the, in the original story that uh, that Akeley is actually just like a, pup, a weird puppet man. And then the story ends. The movie continues and Akeley goes on this adventure to end hold, this. Hold on. Hold, hold on. So this is where I need to jump in, just really quick, and I'll let you finish the plot. But yeah, the, you're right. The end is that they find out that Akeley is a puppet man. He runs away, and then he later reveals why he ran away is because he saw the face and stuff like that. So I I knew going in that there was a different third act. I didn't know what it was. 
it starts to seem like it's going to be like this action movie where he has to go. Will Murray has to go save the day. I was bought into that even more by the fact that they introduce a little girl. Children are rarely a part of Lovecraft stories, let alone like little children that now our protagonist is trying to protect while he saves the day. I'm not going to lie, Peter. I had confidence in the, you know, the people making this movie, but it's like, did they try to go for some action, happier ending? Maybe he dies and he, but he, she saves the girl. That doesn't feel like very Lovecraftian. And I was kind of getting a little disappointed. And about 15 minutes later, uh, they threw that girl out of a fucking airplane. <laughs> <laughs> so I feel like. My worries were uh, very quickly answered. <laughs> Anyways, you can continue with what uh, Yeah, the, the Lovecraft typically doesn't care about women and children. Um, yeah. He's he's like a reverse he's, Titanic he's, boat yeah. operation. Yeah. <laughs> um, like that was part of the operation. <laughs> we're going to crash women and children. <laughs> um, handcuff them to the bow. Um, so, <laughs> Wilmar decides to be a hero in the film version that we're actually talking about today and wilmer decides like i'm gonna go fuck up this ritual that's intended to open up a gateway with this black stone to our universe to allow these i don't know countless Migo amigos to come on through um definitely more than three amigos because that would be martin short chevy chase and steve martin it's so they can all plug into our nintendo switches for new characters right uh, yes, Amigos? that is that is yeah. that is that is how it works. They're trying to, and, and that would actually crash uh, the Nintendo store because that'd be too many Migos for them to count. Because oh, the Nintendo yeah. store can't handle countless Migos. You go to a GameStop and all they got is Migos just flying the line with lo lobster creatures. <laughs> Imagine this, if you like this is a joke for maybe five of our listeners. <laughs> So, anyways, uh, Wilmar decides to go stop the ritual, and he does that by throwing uh, uh, Willie, uh, George Akeley's uh, fucking skull can into the portal to stop the ceremony. Uh, he tries to escape by plane. Uh, that gets he gets this little girl killed. Um, He's like, so it's one of those planes, like, it's back when, like, a, uh, everyone just had a plane and people just knew how to fly them because they went maybe, I don't know, 500 feet. Like, it's like there's no covering to them, right? Like, they're just sitting there and they're their twin cockpit. Think beginning of Raiders of the Lost Ark without the seaplane part. Yeah. But yeah, this this little girl literally falls off to her death as they're being chased by one of the Migos. And then once again, he tries to stop the portal. He crashes the fucking plane into it. Uh, yeah, he's a huge plane crasher. Um, and he... Uh, get off the end of the my story, plane was my favorite line that Lovecraft wrote. So he actually... They actually... Uh, I don't really like it plane. in this particular context, but they do something that I love that they do in Shadow Over Innsmouth, which is Lovecraft wrote so many stories about people just going crazy at the end and killing themselves or going crazy at the end and being in an asylum, yada, yada. Typically Arkham Asylum. I love it the, the, that at the end of Shadow Over Innsmouth, he's just like, oh, I'm just going to like go join... The weird fish people. I'm a fish person. I'm going to... Yeah. I'm going to go check it out. This one has a similar ending where you find out that <clears throat> Wilmarth did not win at the end. He did not get away. He actually became the thing that he feared most. Um, uh, yeah, Radiohead. Radiohead. Yep. He became, He's got questions. We got answers. Yeah. He, he became the th thing he feared most. The Benz. Um, because he just he, the plane went up too. Well, fast. you know, you do it to yourself. You do, but yeah, he's a he's a he's a radio person now. Um, uh, yeah, he's a, he's a known radio personality. 
So let's start there. So yeah, there is a third act. Um, I like it. I think it. Um, I think it. It does a couple cool things. Like the fact you get to find out where the body, what the bodies are being used are for. Like the bodies that they're taking, and they're being used as fucking like human IV bags. I'm not quite sure the context, but there's literally like you see the body of of Arkley or Akeley. And he his his like face has been removed from this skull, and the rest of his body's just hanging there. And like, there's a tube that blood is coming in, and it just passes by, and that's it. And it looks like a human IV bag, and it's it's rules. It's good. I like it. Um, I like the. It's very funny to throw a twelve year old girl out of an airplane. It's, um, it's incredibly good. And uh, I think the ending like it ties back into the original ending of the book, which is like. Pluto, holy shit, guys, they just found it, which is, like, such a cool thing for Lovecraft to do at the time. Like, they did just discover Pluto, and he's – he. we talked about this earlier on with um, the way he would work in real stuff into his fiction and then – uh, and then his his previous fiction into his new fiction and really create this like world and that's why he was so effective at it like yeah adding Pluto's discovery into something to be scared about is such a good idea to create a horse because people probably were like crazy there's a new planet and he wrote a story about it and it ties back into that except that he's a more active participant in the eventual Mego revolution. Uh, which Mego Revolution definitely sounds like a Nintendo Wii game, uh, but it sounds like one of the free games that uh, no. you're like, oh, this is like really cool, and then you literally, oh, I love Dance Dance Revolution. This then, is Mego Revolution, and then the disc is Mego Dance. Ends up, the disc ends up covered in uh, dust underneath your couch for the next like five years. Yeah, do you think this still works? Uh, but uh, but yeah, I actually really I really like it. Um, I think they do a good job. It really does feel like it's going to be some sort of action movie ending. They set it up like that. And even though I was like, really, this is what they're doing with it? I had faith. Like, the thing that was kind of keeping me tethered in those 15 minutes where it was, like, unclear where they were going with this was that, like, if anyone is not going to screw up a Lovecraftian ending, it's the fucking H.P. Lovecraft Historical Society. So, uh, yeah, I really do enjoy it. Um, my, what do you, What do you think about the last third? So, in the original story, I think that it's pretty solid to just have it be an ending where something shocking happens at the end and it kind of lets your mind wander and i i actually typically prefer novellas and short stories to um create a jumping off point for my brain that i can think yeah. about all week i don't uh that actually is one of the reasons it takes me a long time to get through short story collections very often is because like if it's a good short story it takes me like when it's over, I'm just thinking about other stuff. Like, I don't want to jump into... Yeah, you just new. walk around the house going, whoa. And I'm like, whoa. whoa. And, and and your fiancé, by the time this releases, wife. Is that weird to think? Uh, no. <laughs> okay, great. Um, by the time this releases, wife, it's just like, Peter, did you read those short stories again? I told you, long stories are medium stories. <laughs> no short stories. You Never just walk again. around going, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I feel like uh, with this this works. Did I fuck you up story, with uh, with the mentioning I, that by the time this episode comes out, uh, your fiance yeah. and long term girlfriend is going to be your wife? Did that it, like it now you're thinking me. about that? Is that your short story? Yeah, that like, did I just sh- me. did I short story you? 
<laughs> so I I actually think that the uh, the short story works within its context, especially given that it's a 1920s thing and yada yada. Um, I think that the movie, I think it would feel in, way too quaint, especially compared to Call of Cthulhu if the ending was just like face in a jar. The movie does a great job of showing us a weird face. Good I face. don't think that we needed to end there, though. I, I don't think that that would have been a satisfying film ending in 2011 or whatever. Uh, so I really like the movie. However, and I really like the way it ends, but the, the CGI, Migos and stuff, it's just like, it, I think felt the like flying... they got, it felt like they bit their own tail a little bit there where they're like, you know. created this weird third act where we needed to see like dozens of Migos. Yeah. Why did you why did you create a thing that you didn't know how to make? <laughs> so the only one that bothers me, I actually think the ones in the while well, they're trying to create the portal are okay. Like they are like suspension of disbelief, not that effective, but like the the only one that's really kind of bad is the flying brain one that's communicating to him at the very end before he tries to crash his plane. Because you really get a chance to look at that fucking that- that looks straight out of like PS1 graphic and the other ones you don't get the face or whatever the equivalent of the face is. You just have kind of like lobster shell and like smooth lobster shell that's relatively easy to create CGI for. So that that's the only part that just – and you're right. It is like, well, you added this. So why why did you add it if you didn't have the, the technology to do it? I don't know if they were hoping they could pull some mist shit where like the black and white uh, film – uh, covers the the poor CGI, but like there's not enough lack of color in the world that can cover this this why CGI. Did, but why did but they again, add I a just, fucking why did they add a fucking chase scene on an airplane? The airplane part looks good. I like when the kid falls out of it. <laughs> just because it's so unexpected. It, like, I mean, it's because, great. Like, it's great. like Don't get me wrong. I'm not pro throwing children out of airplanes. I want to be very clear. It sounds like you're at least half pro. I. But I'll tell you what, it, uh, as a surprise, <laughs> it's not too bad. It's pretty good. Um, it it uh, it was the, literally the last thing I expected to happen. Um, yeah, so, I mean, they, they introduced a little girl you expected like, oh, well, they want this to have a little bit more mainstream appeal. And they literally just introduced a little girl to toss her out of an airplane, which I would normally complain about. Um, but in this context, it just really clicks for me. Again... It was literally the last thing I would have expected. Even the girl dying is well, well above like the Migo gets her and takes her or something, as opposed to literally just just falling out. And he's like, "Oh shit!" Uh, it's, it's it's pretty good. I don't I don't know. It is again. Most movies don't throw children out of airplanes. This movie, you 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 done did good. Whisper in darkness. Um, yeah, I think ch- I think more children should be thrown out of airplanes. As long as I'm not expecting it. If you just start throwing children out of airplanes in movies or in real life, I'm gonna expect it, and I'll be ruined. <laughs> <laughs> no fun for me. Yeah. Oh, all these children keep getting thrown out of airplanes <laughs> again. Every <laughs> year, pick up the fucking paper. The, yeah, day like day one through HD uh, Caligula. You're like you're like. Uh, you could do a really degrading, awful thing, but it better be the first time I've seen it. 
Yeah, exactly. Day one through four, I was feeling it. But this is day 84 of the of the, the reigning of the children, as we call it now. Um, and I'm sick of it. Look, Every day it honest, rains. Let's be honest. How many days would it take it to not be funny? Uh, how many? Ch- are they throwing a child a day? Um, let's say two a day. <laughs> Dusk and dawn. It's only funny if you throw a kid out of an airplane. Not funny. If you have an uncovered old-timey airplane that anyone can just get and keep in their garage, and you do a loop-de-loop and the kid didn't buckle, <laughs> funny. <laughs> like, so, okay. New, every new time – hold on. But let's – every time you w- see one of those planes, you're like, didn't people <laughs> fall out of it? Because it's just a – it's a plane with no cover, and I – there was no fucking Ralph Nader in 1930 demanding seatbelt laws. <laughs> like, what was the – what was – and, like, apparently you could just probably make them out of fucking balsa wood and everyone was a pilot. The kids, like, turn the propeller this way. I know how to use the throttle. Like, there was no <laughs> licensing system for these fucking things. So, how many – I – the second we're done recording, I'm going to do some research into how many people fell out of those airplanes. <laughs> The number has to be higher than zero. New, new idea. New idea. We don't actually throw children out of airplanes. Okay, that's not funny. That's cruel. That's awful. That's it's terrible, Aaron. I can't believe you'd say that. I'm the saying new the idea is we just we just give a bunch of children a bunch of shitty old prop planes with no seat belts. And every day we rotate it rotate out a new classroom similar to Battle Royale and just see what happens. I am I am a little obsessed with this idea that like you could just have a plane, <laughs> <laughs> like the- like like it just is like oh yeah I got my Buick got the old Chrysler got the prop plane <laughs> that's for getting to town because unlike some people I don't memorize the train schedules <laughs> I could do let's do a whole episode and we're almost out of time here on. Uh, what we think the laws were, uh, if any, regarding uh, prop plane ownership. Uh, I'd love to. I'd love to. I bet you the props were um, keep on trucking and uh, go real fast. You know what? Uh, let's not leave everyone hanging. When was the FAA created that was probably literally created to be like, people are doing loop-de-loops and falling out. <laughs> <laughs> hey, uh, so – you know all those sick tricks that everyone's doing? Yeah, I love them. I love the sick tricks. Oh, the sick tricks? The sick tricks. Nothing nothing yeah, makes um, me feel better from the depression than seeing sick tricks. <laughs> hey, um, like, just like a dude in Iowa is doing evil Knievel shit, like, every day, and every day one of them happens to drop a baby out of them. So maybe we should do, like, a law? And he's like, a law? And they wouldn't be doing sick, evil, can evil shit. Nineteen fifty-eight, Peter. Like no one thought to regulate this shit for a very long time. So, uh, yeah. So, in the interest of time, uh, which is always so funny to say, I wonder if some sometimes I know for a fact because as I'm editing these, we say stuff like "in the interest of time." Also, I hate when we call out specific timestamps because they're never correct. 
not no. even within 15 minutes of each other. No, no, but I love when when it's like, well, we really we really got to get to the end and sometimes in an edited podcast that's 50 minutes into the episode, which gives you a sense how much bullshit gets cut out of these things. Because <laughs> um, probably that means we've been talking for two hours. Uh, but, we just get uh, so excited to talk about these months for like almost a year in advance and then when yeah. we get there, we're like, we really need to talk about infanticide out of airplanes. <laughs> yes, uh, that's the most important part of the movie. Uh, but, but yeah, this, oh uh, yeah, to put a button on that, the CGI does not look good. I don't know why they chose to do a uh, plane mm. action sequence there. I don't know why they introduced that little girl there. But I do like the audacity of being like, Walmarth gets a fucking action scene before he becomes a chump. And I, I still, when even when he flew into the portal, I was like, okay, this is how he gets his non-happy, happy ending, right? He died. He stopped it for now. Uh, and I love that we just see him. Like, I love the reveal at the end where he is. His narration has been through one of the radio boxes with his brain in the tub that we we saw with, like, uh, Akeley and stuff like that. Like, it's a great reveal. And, and he has such a good face for it. Good face. That, like, him, good face looking at the camera with that big fucking smile. Because it's not just like, like, when they put Akeley on the machine, he's like, shit, dude, why are you here? Oh, no! That wasn't me. But, like, him on the box, he's bought into it. Like, he's become one of their quote-unquote spies who's, like, working behind the scenes. And, like, uh, yeah, it's just it's just really well done. Much like Cthulhu, where it's impressive how much they got the style down. Like, this really approximates the, um, the camera moves, the staging of, like, 1930s Universal-era horror movies in, like, this really compelling way. Um, with all the Spooktobers that we've done, I've, like, rewatched and also, like, caught up with some that have always been on my list that I meant to get to, like Invisible Man and Creature from the Black Lagoon. Uh, I know that one's a, a more of a 50s one. But, like, they really get that style down well, and it's gorgeously shot. There is a little bit like again the 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 low budget or no budget comes through in some of the scenes like they clearly redubbed some scenes of the actors' voices probably because of sound issues at the time some scenes it's not noticeable some scenes it's very noticeable and that you know that can be a little bit like it's just things you need to push aside like the CGI but overall like that same like attention to detail at like not just creating an adaptation of Whisper in Darkness or Call of Cthulhu, but trying to approximate like, hey, if if Lovecraft was the biggest thing in the fucking world in the 20s and the 30s, what would those adaptations have looked like? Yeah, yeah, that's a really good way of pointing it because it's not just like, uh, yeah, Lovecraft got an adaptation. Uh, mo- a thing that people ignore in the modern context where everything seems like a franchise or an adaptation or a remake is that, like, this was also true in the 20s and 30s. Um, yeah. The Wizard of Oz that you know was actually the second adaptation of it and not even yep. the last. Um, th- this does fit in that context where, like, H- like this hypothetical alternate reality where H.P. Lovecraft was huge in his lifetime and uh, we just threw a bunch of money at this big special effects extravaganza and Howard Hughes shot the airplane scenes or yada yada whatever yeah. uh, however you want to picture it and I love that about the movie and I think that actually I, I want to call out again 
Uh, Matt Foyer is a really fucking good actor. He plays Wilmarth in this, and he plays the man in uh, Call of Cthulhu. He has an extremely expressive face. He's got these huge lips and these, like, very emotive eyes. And there's exchanges that he has, particularly with his friend Nate Ward at the beginning, where I was like, I'm watching a real movie. This is the. This isn't like, and and it does in a sense have the. Uh, I'm watching community theater, um, feel where I'm like, no, these guys are not going to win Oscars, but like I'm watching people. I, that I, I, I think I think they do better in this one than Cthulhu from that. Like it, Cthulhu feels a little more because it's all like a nonverbal emoting. I actually think that one feels a little more community theater to me. But uh, Cthulhu, I think that they had an interesting task ahead of them because they were like, Cthulhu had an interesting task ahead of them because they were basically saying, I want to emulate the broad strokes of silent film. <laughs> That's not even saying act natural, which uh, Matt Foyer and, his, and a lot of his co-actors in this film um, act, have a really like awesome sense of like, this is the scene. This is what we want yep. to communicate in the scene and let's do it. Um it, it, when you're shooting a silent movie where like you you weren't a trained silent actor like yeah you kind of got to fake it but it works but you're right there's a there's a there's a um it's i'm not saying it's amateurish by saying community theater but i'm saying the sense that yeah. you're like holy shit my dentist can act yeah <laughs> more in that sense where you're like i know these guys from i, I know these guys from the community and then doing voice acting on different stuff but like the idea of seeing them like actually like matt foyer be like a leading man a weird character actor leading man but a leading man like that's that's it, it, there's something thrilling about it it feels like our this weird little this weird little gang um made a star out of this guy and i and i love that i love that yeah yeah, the whole thing is really good. Uh, I um, just kind of final things we didn't get a chance to talk about. Um, I um, the guy dude who you mentioned is a creepy dude that picks him up. Definitely feels like I'm gonna be John Waters, <laughs> and I think it works <laughs> pretty well. Um, that sort of actor show, that sort of performance shows up in a lot of these kind of films uh, that are that are emulating um, the 1940s uh, and the 1930s. And I'm wondering if it's because some X percent of people think that people in the 1930s behaved the way that people in 1930s movies were. They're like, yeah, yeah, see, we're going to we're gonna put on a big show <laughs> no, and there's going to be a weird hair. <laughs> yeah, they really should have done the rear projection driving, though, because they're really driving the car. And that's bullshit. Can, can, um, I, call out, can I call out here uh, Jennifer Jason Lee and Hudsucker Proxy? Like yeah. one of my favorite performances ever. So and good. she is she is leaning into that idea where she's like, she's like, yeah, kid. Uh, I'm going to make yeah. you a million dollars, a million dollars and a half. That's how much money I'm going to make you. <laughs> I always put Hudsucker Proxy in my top five Coen Brothers movies, and I think it's severely underrated. I fucking love that movie. That movie makes me laugh so hard. But I just think that's the thing actors actors love leaning into because they get to do the big like radio voice it is. thing. It's And they're really good at that. Um, the other thing I've kind of mentioned before is that like this is really where like people knowing the author's work – are good at adapting, even if it's not a, 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 a straight adaption or adaptation. So we talked a little bit about like I really think that having you know seventy five percent of the novella focus on him uh, learning his his correspondence with Akeley is really compelling, like very very compelling in a way that I don't always find like Lovecraft compelling to read. Uh, 
And but I think it does make a lot of sense to condense that into 20 minutes because it is a lot of back and forth and building and obviously you can't sustain that from a movie standpoint. So like knowing that like, yes, this is extremely compelling in this form. We need to figure out a way to to communicate the same thing in a shorter period of time and then figure out what is our what is our hook because really the story's similar, but the hook of the novel is like him continuing to get crazier and crazier letters. And then the final act is him going to, to you know, the final letter was so different that he needs to go and do it. And he's keeping these stones and keeping the pictures and stuff like that. And like, again, it's not one of those roll your eyes that Lovecraft just loves to, to, to pad those sort of things with uh, letters and research and stuff like that. It is extremely compelling. Uh but I agree with the filmmakers that like, hey, you know what would have made a less compelling version of this movie? Just someone sort of remembering letters and telling people about it for most of the movie. Like, it's it's knowing what to cut out while well, I think – and I've, I've listened to um, their episode or most of their episode on this for the podcast as well. And they like – they really f- like how tense it gets and like that, that feeling of uh, doom and – panic and uh being just thrilled when that last letter comes and like shit what does this mean now like it's a very well written story in a way that a lot of lovecraft stories near the end were uh yeah and and i love that we're doing this film in particular and the fact that hp lovecraft society gave us a opportunity to do this movie because this does not fit in neatly with a lot of Lovecraft's work, which is about these slinky, gross things in the dark. And and this is not a traditional gothic horror story. This no, is, it, it really is. This and Color Out of Space are like like him being very forward thinking to like – Cutting edge sci-fi. Yeah, yeah. And he even talks about the vibrate. You can't photograph the Migos um, because they – their molecules vibrate at a specific frequency that's different than ours and yada yada. You can't – and uh, the black stone will drive you mad just staring at it too long, yada yada. The molecules vibrating thing was literally like cutting edge molecular science from the 20s and 30s that he was staring at. And him talking about Pluto yeah. and being – he was genuinely unnerved by the discovery of Pluto even though we knew there was something out there because he was like, holy shit. Like yeah. the story I'm writing was a is about a strange planet on the edge of our solar system that gets discovered, and we just confirms the existence of Pluto. Like, and we probably could have calmed him down if we would have told him, "Don't worry, eventually it's not a planet." Yeah, don't worry, eventually it's just a weird rock thing. Um, but yeah, yeah. I, I gotta say, like the. I love when Lovecraft throws out science nods, but whenever he gets into pseudoscience, I'm like, let's 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 walk away from this, buddy. This is a hundred years outdated. Um, the fact that he decided to include specific details to make this feel more real leans into this idea that he at the time was saying, like, it's almost like Blair Witch Project. He's saying yeah. at the time, like, I'm going to take stuff that you know is real. And wrap it up into our story so you feel like it's all real and it makes it scarier for you. And that's just a it's just a genius way to frame a story. He wasn't the first to do it. And uh, he also pulled uh, in the original short story, he pulled from other works that he found weird, other weird fiction works that he found interesting. Yeah. No, and uh, and it's fun when he does other things too. Like there's there's a few examples of this, but like 
when he when he kind of like there's still Cthulhu gets a call out and like the idea of the old god cults and these things. But it's it really is you gotta shout out your brand, you know. You, you gotta shout it out. Uh, it's kind of like how the hold steady says hold steady in every one of their songs. <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, it it like it really it's it's great that he like wrote a couple of these stories uh, in in the last leg of his life that like are so much are so compelling, uh, not just from a idea standpoint, but from a writing standpoint and. Uh, from uh, to give kind of final thoughts on these movies as a whole, like when we when we were picking movies to cover for this month or this this double month, these are obvious candidates. But also, like, there's a part of me that like doesn't put them in the same like category as everything else we're going to cover, good or bad, this month. These are movies like with such a specific purpose and goal and style. That even when they're not wholly successful, a lot of times just it's held back by uh, budget and money and stuff like that. They are these like insane one of a kind artifacts that like no one. There's like that lost skeleton of Kadari or whatever it's called, and like um, alien trespass, which is and both of those are are good ideas that I don't think are very good. Which is like let's make a sci-fi a B sci-fi horror movie from the fifties that's like designed to point out like we p- play it straight face, but it's also kind of ridiculous because those those were ridiculous movies like. Those are kind of weird one-off examples of, like, people trying to make uh, movies in earlier era relatively straight-laced, but those are played for comedy. This is the first time I can think of where they – someone tried to literally make of-era horror films and in a lot of ways succeeded. Like, there's legitimately scary imagery in both of these movies so they they just like they occupy in my brain space when i think about them like they give me the the warm fuzzies and i know that's not like probably a critically engaging way to say it but there is just something about the fact that these two movies exist that like makes me so happy and i would love again i don't know if um they have any intention to i'm sure this is a lot of work and a lot of effort and probably who knows if they even make money with these things but uh, like God, I would love to see a couple more of them. Uh, by this, by the Lovecraft Historical Society, because they're just so like wonderful in a very specific way. Yeah, yeah. I I think that's a really good way to wrap up the story. I, I but I do want to touch on the fact that this just doesn't feel like other Lovecraft stories, and it feels like an outlier. Yeah, and, and I want to continue that thought that you were you were you were going at that this feels like 1950s sci-fi, and the movie kind of leans into that, even though it's supposed to be a movie from the 30s. Like, uh, it feels like head in a jar kind of uh, sci-fi movies of that era. It hints at transhumanism, which would be a huge theme later in the century. But uh, this this movie is about this movie is about. Lovecraft trying to imagine our interaction with a species that's obviously much greater than us. And the original work is about a, a, a sort of scary interaction with a, with a species that's much greater than us. And I, I that's kind of my favorite thing about Lovecraft is like, where do we actually – what is the meeting point at these mo- with these monsters? Because yeah. – uh, a thing that's a million times greater than we can ever possibly understand eating me is not that interesting um, because a fucking bear that I have a pretty good understanding of can eat me. <laughs> 
But a thing that has specific motives and you you may never understand it, you may stop the thing from uh, fulfilling its motives and still not understand <laughs> what you were doing or what it was doing. So uh, that's what I love about Lovecraft uh, in in uh, in a nutshell and in this specific episode. Um, that's what I love about Lovecraft in this specific story in this specific movie is that even if you're playing hero, you might not actually understand what you did. Like the guy who killed uh, Cthulhu didn't understand that Cthulhu's just going to come back. He's just going to go sleep in Relier for a little bit. He just killed like almost an image of Cthulhu. Um, well, the, the guy that look, look, he's a sleepy boy. He's a sleepy boy. And Wilmar might have closed the portal or whatever, but he actually got soaked up into the into the Migos plan. That's that's a that's a great reason to watch this and enjoy this and to separate it out from other Lovecraft stories because this is a like you said a late Lovecraft story that he was evolving on. He was he was getting sick of writing the same old stories again and he was like, "Let me play with my own works." And he he did that all the time. Which is also why he ended up really like disliking Shadow over Innsmouth because he he felt like it was him going back to a well he had done many times before. And in some ways, he's right. Like it is very re- reminiscent of like an expansion of like the festival and some of his other stories. But next week, pretty sure we're going to have a surprise episode, which uh, we'll talk about more next week that Peter and I are extremely excited about. Uh, yeah, it'll be it'll it'll be a pretty big get. It's uh yeah, it's definitely a big get for us from a podcast guest perspective. And I don't mean um, a Jewish divorce as a get. Uh, I mean oh, like I a get as in like, you know, the the other form of got. Uh <laughs> thank you for clarifying. We are we're not getting a Jewish divorce. I thought it was a Jewish divorce and uh that's why I was excited, but can't wait to find out who will be coming on the podcast. Um well, to clarify, we're both men, so we could give each other a get at any point. Peter it's not a great joke. <laughs> uh, you know the you know the song by the birds to everything there is a season. Uh-huh. Um, turn, please turn. So you're saying this is more of a fall joke than a long summer, a long winter. No, joke. I'm saying turn to the next season of jokes. Oh, okay, got it. We're we're not recording the next episode for a couple weeks because someone's getting married. This is your last episode. As a as a single dude, because uh, you know what they say: until you get that ring on it, you can just fuck whoever you want. <laughs> <laughs> Is that but true? Not, but once once you have the ring, you can't. You you have to. I mean, I you I guess you can. Depends on what Molly and you have discussed. But yeah, dude, you're still single guy. Wow. It's like at your crazy bachelor party where we sat and talked. We just had a, a good conversation. We just had a good conversation. And we watched uh, two-thirds of Aquaman. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so this is – do you have anything to say, Peter? Like when you, when you look back for yourself, future you, like your last episode as Peter Moran and I'm assuming you're taking her last name. Uh, yes, I am. Um, my, my advice to Peter Burka in the future, which is also uh, her father's name is Mark Peter Burka. So great. Really great. Not weird. Um, no, uh, my advice to Peter Moran six months down the line, 12 months down the line is you should have done it earlier, dumbass. Not only is that not helpful advice. Can I tell help Peter four years ago? Yeah, yeah. The, like the worst advice you can give to future Peter is a 
is is saying that the present Peter acted too late because what is future Peter going to do? Um, yeah, no, I'm, I'm. You better hope time is circular. I grew up Roman Catholic. Um, the idea. Oh, you of, just want to guilt him. The idea it. of me passing guilt onto someone else, even if it's me in the past, is totally fine. I got it. So you're more like shouting out like. If you didn't go to confession about this, baby, think about it. <laughs> uh, I get it. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, that's exciting. Uh, next time I talk to you, Peter, it will be uh, at your wedding. Uh, hopefully mid-ceremony. Yeah. I say we do one of our classic bits, but. Uh, Aaron, I haven't talked about this much with you, but there's there's a genuine problem that's arisen that. I've been saying my wife for so many years that I'm just not going to be able to say it in earnest. I'm excited. The first time you say it on this podcast, it's going to be the next hour. Just my wife, my (laughs) wife, but for like eight hours. Like, oh, they released a nine hour episode. I guess Peter finally said my wife, my wife. Are you planning to be angry at her when you're referencing her? Uh, just because I can't say it in a bore. My wife. Yeah. I see. You see, you want to sound, you, you're going to always have to be like, hey, come here and meet my wife. <laughs> We've actually been handling a lot of the wedding bullshit and the money and all that stuff really well. But the other day, we got some charge that was $69 and I had to comment on it. And she and she looked at me uh, as if I were, were just dirt. Just dirt within dirt. Um, so... Like a turducken of dirt. Uh, I'm going to be very happy to be done with the whole wedding part and just get to the married part. My wedding has 94 people coming. Uh, chances are I'm just going to turn into politician mode at some point and just be like, hello, how are you? Thank you for coming. Hello, how yeah. are you? Thank you for coming. Uh, we get married not because it is easy, but because it is hard. <laughs> <laughs> Good night. Ich bin ein married. <laughs> Story about the call that changed my destiny. Me and my boys went out just to end up in misery. Was about to go home when she was standing in front of me. I said, Hi, I got a little place nearby. I wanna go. I should have said no. Someone's waiting for me. But I got my girl up and said, I'm sorry. Thanks for listening to We Love to Watch. Thank you so much for listening to our show. And we've got just a few quick announcements for you. There ain't nothing in the rule book that says that we can't do some of our own plugs, baby. If you'd like to talk to us, uh, tell us we're stupid. Tell us we're beautiful. The quickest way to get to us is our Facebook group, facebook.com slash we love to watch. Or our website, WLTWpodcast.com. Leave us a comment. Tell us we're doing a good job. Only tell us we're doing a good job. We're so sensitive. We're sensitive boys. We're soft boys. And uh, if you'd like to help other people, if you enjoy our show and want other people to be able to listen to this fine, fine program that we produce at no cost, 
We don't get any money for this. You guys have yet to pay us anything. We live and we breathe off of good reviews from iTunes. So if you would please go to iTunes, review our show, give us a positive rating. We would love to get more and more people involved in this show and this community. I know you hear it all the time, but it really does help. And we're also available, if you don't use iTunes, we're also available on Google Music, Stitcher, TuneIn. We're currently on SoundCloud. We'll take that out if SoundCloud goes away. (laughs) That's it. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned, guys, on our Facebook page especially. We're going to have a lot more polls, a lot more prizes, and a lot more uh, interaction with you guys. So keep it tuned in. Uh, Let us know what you guys are thinking. And again, above all else, thanks for listening. So we love to watch.